Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. You may be seated. I want to second what John had to say with regard to thanking the men, all the men that came and worked so hard yesterday. It looks great. I mean, there were a number of men out here. I mean, there were chainsaws buzzing, tractors rolling, uh, fires going. So it was, it was very busy, and it, it look, it's looking good. So I want to thank all of you and then the ladies who also prepared the meal. Thank you also very, very much. We appreciate uh, your efforts. Having said that, let's uh, jump into what we're going to look at this morning. Paul Washer, who... Many of you know, or many of you are familiar with, is a a very powerful preacher. He served as a missionary to Peru for 10 years. He now serves as the founder, director, and missions coordinator of Heart Cry Missionary Society, which supports indigenous missionaries throughout Africa, Asia, Europe, the Middle East, Eurasia, and Latin America. And this past month at the Shepherds Conference, he did a breakout session titled, Brave Reforms in Evangelical Missions. And I didn't attend the session, I was in another one, but I have listened uh, to his message a couple of times since. And it was very good, very good, very instructive. And in his session, and he was speaking in the context of missions and going out and planning churches, but it would also be true of sending men out to pastor churches. And he said that among the greatest threats to missions and planting churches today is, number one, pragmatism. You know, does it work? And then secondly, he said, sending people out to be missionaries because they want to go, whether they're qualified or not. He said this is a major problem, and the solution is that men being sent out as missionaries and church planters must be elder qualified. In other words, they must meet the same spiritual qualifications as a pastor, teacher, and elder. John MacArthur said this, The pressure is on very often to put a man into an elder position who doesn't belong there because you feel the pressure to do so for whatever reason. But there must be constant vigilance to protect the sanctity and the sacredness of the office of pastor, teacher, or elder. And so that immediately raises the question, how do you keep from sending men out to, the, to be missionaries, church planters, or pastors because they want to go, whether they are spiritually qualified or not? How do you make sure you're not putting someone in the office of pastor, teacher, or elder who shouldn't be there for whatever reason? And how do you prevent this from happening? Well, uh, we don't have to wonder about it. Uh, I I suppose you could say that you could, uh, you know, search this out a number of ways. I mean, first of all, you could speak with someone else who may not know. 
secondly, you could immediately go to the writings of men, and certainly the writings of men are helpful. They're godly men. Uh, or you can immediately turn to the scriptures, which is the first and best option. Because the, the scriptures are our rule for faith and practice. The word of God is the final authority uh, for all that we do within the church. And so what, what I want to begin addressing this morning uh, is not the qualifications of someone for ministry. That's not the purpose of this study. Uh, this study, uh, in this study, it's a two-part study, I want to speak about the calling and the affirmation of a man for the ministry. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I'm going to ask you to stand as I read the inerrant and infallible Word of God. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and please stand. Be reading verses 22 through 25. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And then he adds a personal note. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And then back to the subject at hand. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are that are not cannot remain hidden. So may the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Now, before we could ever get into this text, there's some groundwork that needs to be laid. First of all, we need to understand that the ministry is not simply a job that a man chooses to go into. It is not a career path. Rather, it is a vocation. That is, it's the answering of a specific call from God. And this means the ministry is not a position a man takes for himself. In four of his letters, in 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul begins his letters in this way. He said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. By the will of God. Paul wanted it to be abundantly clear that his apostleship was not something he chose. It was not of his own doing or by his own efforts. He was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. One commentator said this, For if a man were the most gifted and most excellent in the world, yet he thrusts himself forward under his own impulse, he disturbs all order. And we know that God will have order and not disorder among us. And so the point is simply that the Apostle Paul did not take the office of apostle for himself. He did not place himself in the ministry by his own will or choosing. It was by the will of God. Paul was an apostle by the will of God. Secondly, Paul was called by God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so Paul was called by the will of God 
to be an apostle. And this word called speaks of being divinely selected and appointed to the discharge of some office. And so Paul was called by the will of God, and God even gave testimony to the fact that he had called and chosen Paul as an apostle. After Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, and you know the story, he was blinded, God sent Ananias to pray for him. And this is what the Lord said to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So God gives testimony to the fact that he had called and chosen Paul as an apostle. And then Paul himself describes his call when Jesus appeared to him when he was struck down on the road to Damascus. In fact, why don't you turn to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. In Acts chapter 26, we read, beginning in verse 13 through verse 18, this is Paul speaking to King Agrippa, giving, Paul is giving his testimony before King Agrippa. This is what Paul says, speaking of his conversion and his calling. He said, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had, we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So there Paul describes his calling by God. And Paul describes this call's effect in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, where he said, I thank him who has given me the strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Why, Paul? Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Paul was chosen by God, called by God. All this was by the will of God. And Paul was called to the extraordinary office of apostle, so he was called with an extraordinary call through direct and immediate revelation from God, which is the way God called men in the Old Testament. He called judges such as Gideon and Samson. He called prophets such as Moses, Samuel, Elisha, and Jeremiah. God also strictly reserved the right to appoint Levitical priests, and he sovereignly chose Israel's kings such as Saul and, and David in the New Testament. Jesus called the 12 disciples. Eleven of the disciples were then called as apostles. And then, of course, God also sovereignly called and chose Paul as an apostle. But you see, God no longer calls men this way, according to Scripture. 
According to Scripture, the pastoral call is not given through such direct and immediate revelation from God for the very simple fact that God no longer gives direct revelation. Because today, we have the completed canon of Scripture through which God speaks to us. And God's Word reveals to us the way men are called today, which we'll get to in just a moment. But the point here is that Paul didn't take this calling for himself. He was an apostle by the will and calling of God. He was called and appointed to this position by Jesus Christ himself. Commenting on this, one commentator said, He then that speaks, at least to teach, must have a calling. That is to say, he must be admitted and have his charge given to him, so that every man may not put himself forward by reason of an unadvised zeal. And why is this so important? Well, this commentator continues. He said, deceivers may well boast with full mouth that they are called as we see they do. So the ministry is not, it's not simply a job. It's not a career path. It is a calling. It is a divine calling. It's the call of God on a man's life. In fact, uh, we could say it is the highest calling in Christian service. And the Lord Jesus Christ created the pastoral office to care for his church, which Acts 20 tells us he obtained with his own blood. And then to fill this office, God himself, according to Ephesians chapter 4, gives to the church pastors and teachers. God is the one who provides his church with pastors. God is the one who raises up men to serve in this office. And therefore, we're not to seek pastoral ministry because we think we would do a good job because we, uh, I mean, we're not to seek the pastorate because it will bring us personal satisfaction or fulfillment, and we're not to seek the pastorate because we're willing to fill a need for leadership in the church because the need is never the call. The need is never the call. Pastoral ministry is not an office or a position men take for themselves. Rather, it is something a man is called to by the will of God. And just as in our call to salvation, God is always the initiator of the call. It is God who calls men. And so that immediately raises this question. So how do we know if God is calling us to pastoral ministry? And this is an important question because there's an awful lot of confusion out there today, and there is even confusion in this church. So let's look at the issue of how to know if God is calling us to pastoral ministry. There are those who have had some kind of, you know, lightning bolt experience where they believe they were told they were to become pastors or missionaries. On the other hand, there are those who think because they didn't have some kind of knock-you-to-the-ground Damascus Road experience, then they must not be called as pastors. But the problem with both of these approaches to discerning the call and will of God is that they are rooted in mysticism and subjectivism. You know, they misunderstand that God no longer gives direct revelation apart from the Scriptures. And they place too much emphasis on experience, either having one or not having one. Thirdly, there are those who don't believe the ministry is a divine call to be obeyed at all, but merely a career option. And those in this group believe if a man wants to be in ministry, it's like applying for a job. You simply match your qualifications with the right opportunity. 
So they prepare their resume and look for open pastoral opportunities, but there are two fundamental problems with this approach. First of all, it's a denial of God's individual will for the believer. And secondly, it's not faithful to God and his word, and it it neglects the vital aspect of a true divine calling to ministry. But the good news is that God's word provides a safer and a wiser path to pastoral ministry. So, back to our question. How can we recognize if God is calling us to pastoral ministry? Well, there are two aspects of a call to ministry. The first is somewhat subjective. It begins with a desire. And some would refer to this as the internal call. A man who is called must have a compelling desire for ministry. I mean, Paul, writing to Timothy, said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy if anyone, and the New American Standard, the New King James, the uh, Legacy Standard translated man, you know, if any man, and we know it speaks of a man because Paul says he in, in just a moment. So, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and that's the same office as pastor or elder, he, this man, desires a noble task or a noble work or a good work or a fine work. Now, two things need to be said here. First of all, the office of pastor, teacher, elder is limited to men. You say, how do we know? Well, Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, I do, and this is in the context of the church, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So the Lord, through Paul, forbids women from exercising any type of authority over men in the context of the church assembly. Why? Well, I mean, that's a whole study in itself, but for the purpose of this study, Because the elders are those who rule, according to 1 Timothy 5.17, and they are all to be men, as is very clear from the qualifications given in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 and 5. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, Therefore an overseer or an elder or a pastor teacher must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And then in verses 4 and 5 of that same chapter, Paul says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, a woman could hardly be the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man. I know that there are those today who try this, but it's not true. A woman can hardly be the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man. And nor did women in that day head households. And so in the context of the church assembly, Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.11, women are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then he explains what that means in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says women are to remain quiet, which means they are to remain quiet by not teaching the church assembly, and they are to demonstrate submission by not usurping the authority of the pastors or elders. So the point is simply that women are not to be the leaders in the church. But we also have to immediately say women have a vitally important role in the church, in the home, and in society. But that role does not include leadership over God's people. Women can do many, many things in the church. 
but they are prohibited from holding only two positions, that of pastor, teacher, or uh, elder. These are limited to men. And so this calling to ministry we're speaking about is a limited calling in the sense that it is limited to men. And secondly, pastor, pastor, teacher, overseer, elder, and some translations even use the word bishop. These terms are used interchangeably and refer to one and the same office. These men are called to share in the oversight and direction of the local church. They are responsible to lead, to instruct, preach, and teach, and ordain other leaders. But not all of them are called to give their life and all of their time on a full-time basis to the work of shepherding and preaching and teaching. And certainly both would be in view when it comes to calling and qualification. But our focus is on those who are set apart to give all of their time and effort, their lives, to the, call, uh, to the calling of vocational ministry. And so the first aspect of the call to ministry is that a man who is called must have a compelling desire. If you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, First Timothy chapter 3, right there in verse 1. Paul, writing to Timothy, said, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And the apostle Peter adds to this when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God among you, he's speaking to the elders, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And so we see in these two verses that it's good to desire to serve as a pastor or an elder. It's an excellent pursuit. That's what the word noble means, excellent. So it's an excellent pursuit. But more than this, it's required of a pastor to desire the ministry to desire this ministry. I mean, he's not to serve under compulsion, but rather voluntarily and with eagerness. And so if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, Paul says he desires a noble task. Now that word aspires is a rare word. It appears only here and then in 1 Timothy 6.10 and Hebrews 11.16. And in the New Testament, it means to reach out after or to stretch out oneself to grasp something. And the term does not speak of internal motives, but only describes the external act. And here it describes someone who's taking steps to become an overseer. The word desires in that same verse. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires. Well, that word desires comes from a Greek word which means a passionate compulsion. In this context, uh, it's for good rather than for evil. In contrast to aspires... This word refers to the inward feeling of desire. And so taken together, the two terms describe the man who outwardly pursues the ministry because of a driving compulsion on the inside. The desire for ministry then is is an inner desire. It's an inner conviction. It is a compelling desire given by the Holy Spirit to the man whom God is calling. However, We have to notice that it is a desire for a noble task. 
that is, for a noble work. In other words, they have a compelling desire for the work of ministry, not the position of the minister. And today, people enter the ministry for a variety of reasons, not all of them commendable. Some desire it for the wrong motives, such as money, power, the title, the respect, the apparent prestige of pastoring, or the authority that comes with the pastorate, or other unacceptable motivations. But Paul, however, clearly states that the overseer should strongly desire the work of the ministry. And make no mistake about it, the ministry is work. It is a demanding, lifelong task. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, Paul said, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, he said, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. John MacArthur said, the ministry is no nine-to-five occupation that one can walk away from and forget each evening. Its work is never-ending and dependent upon maximum effort in the power of Christ that work in the man. So spiritual leadership in the church isn't all about titles and honor and glory. No, it's about work. Because as Jesus said, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. It's not the office, those who are truly called seek, but rather the work itself. Spurgeon said, the first sign of a heavenly call is an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. So how can we recognize if God is calling us to pastoral ministry? Well, first of all, is the internal call. A man must have a compelling desire in his heart for the work of ministry. But is that all? Is a strong desire for the ministry enough? I attended an expository workshop back in March, which was taught by doctors Josh Bice, Tom Buck, and Vodi Bakum, who I'm sure many of you know, or know of. And it was said to this room full of pastors and aspiring pastors, you may have a burning desire to preach, but that does not mean you have been called by God to preach. They also said, You may be a gifted communicator and even be able to communicate truth, but that does not mean you have been called to preach. And they're right. And having a strong desire for the ministry, even being a good communicator, is not enough. I mean, too often, men move forward in seeking a pastorate simply because they desire to serve in this office. But the church, the leadership, are are not to immediately accept the person just because they aspire to the work. You see, the Word of God has more to say to us about a man called by God to pastoral ministry. A man must not only have the desire for ministry, he must also meet the biblical qualifications for ministry. I mean, God has specific qualifications for leaders in the church. Leaders are not to be chosen at random, nor because they volunteer or aspire to the position, nor even because they are natural leaders with natural talents and abilities. They must meet the qualifications for ministry, and and we have no doubt as to what those are because they're given to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And we're not going to go through the qualifications one by one because, as I said earlier, that's not the purpose of this study. I'm just going to read through them, and I'll leave you to study them on your own. 
Uh, the only comment I'll make on these is that all of the qualifications fall under the general qualification of being above reproach or being blameless. Of course, being blameless does not mean sinless. It does not mean uh, the man must be perfect because it, if it did, that would really limit our choices, wouldn't it? Uh, because there was only one who was perfect and sinless, and that was Jesus. Being blameless means he must be a man whose life is characterized by moral integrity. In other words, he is committed to Christian biblical morality. And he's known to be committed to this not only by the stands he takes, but by the lifestyle he exhibits. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, Paul points out that this must be recognized and appreciated not only by believers, but by unbelievers as well. Paul said, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. In other words, a man who aspires to ministry and leadership in the church must be a person who is known both in the church and in the secular world as a person who exhibits what biblical, spiritual, Christian morality is all about. He must be a man of integrity. No charge of false doctrine or false teaching or sinful behavior can be proved against him. doesn't mean he won't be falsely accused, but the accusations cannot be proved. Again, doesn't mean he's sinless, but if he does sin, it means he is prompt to make it right by confession to God, by apology to the person's wrong, and by restitution, if that's applicable. And so he's to be a man whose lifestyle is such that no one can legitimately accuse him of conduct that is not befitting of a mature believer. It doesn't mean that he is without room for growth and improvement in any of the qualifications, again, because no one is perfect. These qualifications are both goals to reach for and, general, and a general criteria for selection. You know, does the man in question desire all these things with his whole heart? Does that desire show itself in his life? And so the emphasis of these two passages, the one in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, is that a pastor or elder is not qualified to be such on the basis of desire, education, influence, social status, wealth, or human talents and abilities. He must meet the biblical qualifications for ministry. And, and let me just say this, speaking about these qualifications, the majority of these qualities are actually commanded of all believers in some fashion. So these apply to all Christians. So let me just read through them. If you want to follow along, it's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 7, and then we'll read Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And I'm just going to read through them. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And now over in Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, pretty much the same thing. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunken or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so as you look at all of those qualifications, you see the focus is on godly character. I mean, he must be spiritually mature, have his marriage and family in order, be sound in doctrine, and have the spiritual giftedness. But the overarching scriptural qualification for leadership in the church is always a man's character. And a man's character will be revealed in everything from the words he speaks, the choices he makes, his actions, and also by his inaction. Alexander Strzok said, God provides objective, observable qualifications to test the subjective desire of all who seek the office of overseer. Desire alone is not enough. It must be matched by good character and spiritual capability." And so, regardless of a person's desire and good intentions to enter the ministry, if they fail to meet the biblical qualifications, then they cannot fulfill that call. And this means that anyone who desires to be a pastor should prayerfully read these passages and ask themselves, you know, does this describe me? Do I recognize myself in these passages, though I have much room for growth and maturity? You know, do I desire these things? Any man considering a call to pastoral ministry must submit to the test of his character. And this character evaluation requires the local church, as we'll see in a moment. And so these are the biblical or spiritual qualifications for a pastor or elder. You say, well, is that all? Is the internal call, you know, the compelling desire and and meeting the spiritual qualifications all there is to it? No. When Scripture lays out the qualifications for pastors in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the Apostle Paul does not do so merely for men who believe they're called to do a quick self-assessment. That's not enough. I mean, my goodness. Uh, We can all deceive ourselves by thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. I mean, Scripture warns us about that. And so Dave Harvey in his book, Am I Called?, said this, I remember a church member who sat across from his pastor testifying that he'd received a call to ministry. He went on with no little verbosity, informing his pastor of how humbled he was to receive the call and how odd he was to be chosen. Never asked a question, never invited any evaluation. Then he informed the pastor that he would be leaving the church in search of his ministry. And so he asked the question, is that what happened? God speaks so loudly to a man that the other's voices become unnecessary. Well, the answer to that is no. A compelling desire, meeting the spiritual qualifications, and doing a self-assessment do not constitute a call to the ministry. You say, well, what else is there? Well, as I said a moment ago, there are two aspects of the call to ministry. First, the internal call. That desire which must be accompanied by a life that meets the spiritual qualifications and has the spiritual giftedness. But secondly, and of utmost importance, is what is called the external call. The external call. You say, well, what is that? Well, great question. It's the recognition and evaluation by the church Specifically, the church's leadership of a man's spiritual qualifications for ministry and their affirmation of God's internal call on his life. 
The church and the elders do not generate the call to ministry or by any means convey the call to ministry. That comes from God. Rather, the church leadership, the elders, are charged with identifying called men, evaluating their call, assessing their character, and then affirming their call and then positioning them to be fruitful in that call. I mean, this is the responsibility of the local church. And so if and when the leadership of the church is able to affirm God's call on a man's life, it is done through the laying on of hands. And laying on of hands is a practice that had its roots in the Old Testament. It came from the practice of laying hands on a sacrificial animal to identify with it. In the New Testament, laying on of hands also symbolizes identification, and it's usually connected with ordination. And ordination is simply this process of recognizing, observing, evaluating a man's qualifications for ministry, which culminates then in the laying on of hands, the public recognition of this man. And so to lay hands on someone means you are affirming that this man is suited for, he is ready for, and should be accepted into public ministry. It, it expresses solidarity, union, and identification with them. It's the leadership of the church saying, yes, we believe this man is called by God to ministry. He has the desire, he meets the spiritual qualifications, he has the spiritual giftedness necessary for the office, and we wholeheartedly affirm that before God and the church. And therefore, in good conscience, we now commend him to the ministry to which God has called him. And we do so with all of our love and our fullest support. On the other hand, if you cannot affirm his spiritual qualifications and giftedness, it is incumbent upon the leadership not to lay hands on him until such a time those things can with confidence be recognized and confirmed again before God and before the church. Now, someone may say, well, you know, why do you place so much emphasis on the external call? Well, because it's biblical. And here's why. When Paul laid out the qualifications for pastors in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, he was writing to two of his close ministry associates about the need to recognize and appoint men whom God has called to pastoral ministry. And so Timothy and Titus were directly involved in evaluating potential men from the ministry and then appointing them to the ministry. And furthermore, this was done in the context of the local church. It wasn't as if Paul entrusted this responsibility to Timothy and Titus apart from the churches they were pastoring. This means Paul fully expected Timothy and Titus to pass these letters on to other local churches where the elders in those churches would also be involved in the assessing and the affirming of men for pastoral ministry. And this external call of confirmation again, is the responsibility of the local church, and it must not be neglected. I mean, what better place is there for a man's character, his life, his marriage, his family, his doctrine, and his spiritual giftedness to be examined and evaluated than in the local church? God works directly in the life of a man, calling him to ministry, and God also works through the local church to affirm and appoint him to public ministry. And these two parts must go together. While the first, the, the internal call, is necessary, it's not enough. 
The church must confirm that all the necessary external evidence and requirements are there to affirm that individual's internal and personal call by God. One man said it this way. In short, ordination by the church was the ordinary and authorized method in the apostolic practice for the investiture with the office of those found qualified by the previous call and special gifts conferred by Christ. Not that the ordination by the church conferred a right to the office of the ministry. That right was previously conferred by Christ. And ordination in itself was not more than the church's recognition of the right so conferred and the church's admission of the individual to the discharge of the office to which he was thus called. Well, someone may ask, well, you, you say this is biblical, but do you have a biblical basis for this? Well, the answer is yes. While there is no specific description of this affirmation or this ordination process in Scripture, there are many examples of the concept that God works through the church to affirm those he has called to ministry. Take, for example, the Apostle Paul. Even though Paul's calling was unique and can never be seen as the model for today, the fundamental principles of, of this concept of ordination are seen in his life as he moved from his conversion on the road to Damascus to a role as church leader in Antioch. First of all, it's clear that despite his direct calling by the Lord Jesus, Paul did not immediately go into widespread public ministry. When his first attempts to preach Christ were met with such hostility on the part of the Jews that the brothers sent him away to Tarsus. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. And then he went to Arabia to ponder the meaning of his conversion, to, to think and to meditate on what he had learned and have quiet fellowship with God, receive further revelation to reorient his understanding of Scripture and, and look for the things concerning Christ in the Old Testament. You know, Galatians 1.17 speaks of him going to Arabia. Then after three years, he returned to Jerusalem to meet Peter, Galatians 1.18. And then once again, he returned to Syria, where despite some public preaching, he was not well known to the churches there. And that's in Galatians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. And then according to Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, 14 years later, Paul went back to Jerusalem where he set before them the gospel he proclaimed. That's in Galatians 2. And so James, John, and Peter affirmed Paul in his understanding of the gospel message and then extended to him the right hand of fellowship in confirmation of the grace that was given to him. And so what we have here is a rough sketch of ordination. Paul's call and appointment as an apostle came from Christ himself. But it took a period of years to develop his character and his message. And then at some point, he submits himself and his message to the leaders of the church who, after examining him, and examining him carefully, confirm on him their blessing through extending to him the right hand of fellowship and in so doing affirm the reality of his calling and appointment as the apostle to the Gentiles. We see another example of this same concept in Acts chapter 13. God was at work in Antioch, and so the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas there to observe the work and to confirm the work which he did. We read in Acts chapter 11. Then after that, we read in Acts chapter 11, so Barnabas then went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. So there was all of this work of God going on at Antioch. Barnabas went there, confirmed that, and then he went to look for Paul in, in Tarsus and brought him back. And Paul then, along with Barnabas and the other leadership, taught the people for a whole year. 
And then about this time, there was a famine in Jerusalem, and so the church in Antioch took an offering, sent it to the elders in Jerusalem by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And, and after completing their mission, they again returned to Antioch. And in Acts 13, we read, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And thus began Paul's first missionary journey. The Holy Spirit not only called Barnabas and Saul to a specific work, he affirmed and activated that call to ministry through the church by the public laying hands public laying on of hands by the church leadership. Saul and Barnabas then went out, but not on their own, but under the authority of the local church and its leaders. You say, well, how do we know? Well, in Acts 14, when they returned to Antioch, we read in verse 14, Acts 14, 27. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And so they came back and gave a full report of their ministry activities to the church in Antioch. So there was an element there of accountability. And Paul's continued association with the church as the affirming body of Christ in his life is also seen in Acts chapter 15, verse 40, where after choosing Silas as his new ministry partner, they departed, as it says, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And so even though Paul was an apostle, he still demonstrated a dependence upon the local church to affirm what he believed God had called him to do personally. We see in the life life and work of Timothy this process by which God separates a man for public ministry. Now most of you are aware of the fact that that Timothy was probably converted under Paul's ministry during his first missionary journey to Timothy's hometown of Lystra. And then apparently when Paul returned to Lystra on his second missionary journey, Timothy had grown so much in his love and devotion for Christ that the church leaders recommended him to Paul, who then enlisted Timothy to travel with him on some of his missionary journeys. And somewhere along the line, God's call upon Timothy's life became evident and was affirmed by the church leadership. And Paul reminds Timothy of this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, where he says to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. It was the elders of the church who officially recognized and affirmed Timothy's calling to the ministry, and that was publicly demonstrated through the laying on of hands. And so it's very clear that in the New Testament, ordaining men to leadership or ministry was done by three groups. First of all, the apostles themselves ordained elders. In Acts 14.23, And when they, Paul and Barnabas, had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So here we see Paul and, and his traveling companion Barnabas, and they appointed elders and uh, committed them to the Lord. Not only did the apostles ordain elders, so did their close associates, such as Timothy and Titus, uh, and they were direct, who were directly involved in evaluating potential men for ministry and then appointing them as elders. First Timothy 5.22, speaking of elders, 
He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Timothy was to appoint elders, and he wasn't to do it hastily. Titus 1.5, Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So the apostles ordained elders, as did their close associates, such as Timothy and Titus. And then thirdly, the existing elders in the local churches also ordained other elders, as is made clear by 1 Timothy 4.14, that the council of elders laid their hands on Timothy. And today, since the first two groups have passed from the scene, and I say that because there are no more apostles and or their representatives today, And that being the case, the responsibility of appointing or ordaining falls on the elders of the church. And so we see from these examples the role of of elders in the local churches recognizing and affirming God's call on a man's life before putting him into pastoral ministry. However, since since no set process is specifically given in the Bible, Well, then it might vary from denomination to denomination or from church to church as to the specific details of the process and even the formality of the process. But everyone must recognize that even though the details of the process may vary, the biblical evidence is clear concerning the responsibility of the church to protect itself by limiting the pastoral office to those who are truly called by God. And this can never be optional. It can never be optional. Because the qualifications and guidelines given to Timothy and Titus for recognizing and affirming pastors and leaders means that God intends the elders to examine closely all of those they would affirm and appoint as its spiritual leaders. One man said, while no official process is laid out in Scripture, The great responsibility of serving as an under-shepherd of Christ in teaching, praying, leading, and correcting his flock demands our best efforts. For while God is not dependent upon us in order to raise up laborers for his harvest, he certainly is worthy of our best and most diligent efforts in raising up and appointing to his service the best men we have. And loved ones, I don't think people understand how vitally important this process is. And it's obvious from what goes on in the mission field, what goes on in in church planning and in churches today, it's obvious that this isn't seen as being vitally important. And it's vitally important not only for the church, but also for the one being considered for pastoral ministry. It, It is important for the one being considered for ministry for the sake of assurance, and for accountability, and and for authority. And and we'll talk more uh, about this in the second part of the study. It's also very important for the sake of the church, for the health of the church, for the unity of the church, and for the protection of the church. And again, we'll talk more about this in the second part. And so while this process will not solve all the problems, because churches and, and church leadership can be fooled, So while this process will not solve all the problems, it certainly does help protect the church from those whose lives or messages or doctrine or gifts do not measure up to God's standard and who may actually bring harm upon the church. 
1979, John MacArthur was celebrating 10 years at Grace Community Church when on what they now refer to as Black Tuesday, the pastoral staff, and my understanding is it was all of the pastoral staff except a youth pastor, the pastoral staff mutinied. And they made accusations against Dr. MacArthur. And they brought up statements Dr. MacArthur had made off the cuff. And they knew what they were doing. And they tried to get rid of Dr. MacArthur and tried to destroy Grace Church. And during the time this was going on, Dr. MacArthur preached a four-part series titled How to Destroy Grace Church. It's still available. Uh, You can still listen to it if you would like. And during this series, as all of this was going on, Dr. MacArthur kept coming back to the theme that elders are the overseers. They have been ordained as such by the Spirit of God. And first they take care of their own life, and then they take care of the flock. And he said, Satan works hard to corrupt that. And how does he corrupt that? Well, in the first message uh, of that four-part series, Dr. MacArthur said this. Well, first of all, by getting the wrong people in leadership, some of them good people, some of them fine people, but not qualified people in terms of biblical qualification. And that's not fair to them or the church either. This is a great concern to us. Satan can do the most damage by corrupting the leadership. That's Satan's primary work, to corrupt the leadership. And so not only does Satan want to infiltrate it, speaking of leadership, with unqualified people, people who don't live up to the standards, people who don't really fill the office, though they could be wonderfully effective in other areas, but he wants to destroy the ones that are there. And so you have to be sure that as you call on leadership, you're looking for people who are not self-willed or self-seeking or ambitious or power-hungry, but people who only want to serve as God has called and gifted them to serve in humility and faithfulness. Because when you get someone who loves to have the preeminence and seeks the office for the glory of his own life, seeks the prominence, seeks the preeminence, then you get a corrupted situation. Well, Grace Church and Dr. MacArthur survived. But at the 25th anniversary of the church, there was another uh, problem in the church. So much so that uh, the the church had a 25th anniversary celebration for Dr. MacArthur and his wife, and they were sending him on a trip, and they were getting ready to leave, and they had a receiving line at the reception. And as one of the elders who stood with Dr. MacArthur at the 10-year anniversary through that, uh, as he came up to shake Dr. MacArthur's hand, Dr. MacArthur said, I hope I have a church to come back to. And this is Grace Community Church. Well, obviously it survived. And Dr. MacArthur continues today to to preach the Word of God after 54 years of being at Grace Church. And so back to our original question. How do you make sure you're not putting someone in the office of pastor, teacher, or elder who shouldn't be there for whatever reason? How do you prevent this from happening? You know, how can we recognize if God is calling someone to pastoral ministry? Well, as we've learned today, first of all, they must have a compelling desire for ministry. Secondly, they must meet the spiritual qualifications, have the spiritual giftedness for ministry, and this must be recognized and affirmed by the leadership of the local church. 
Well, so how does this recognition and affirmation take place? How, how does all of this take place? It takes place with great care. With great care. By observing and evaluating a man's character, the character of his life, his leadership of his family, his doctrine, his giftedness, etc., etc. And none of that happens overnight. It doesn't happen quickly. I mean, there's no set period of time. But it doesn't happen overnight. It, it may vary from person to person how long it takes. Because it just takes time to get to know someone. It, get, it takes time to get to know these things about a person. It takes a lot of time. And that is why Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22. Look at verse 22 in 1 Timothy 5. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. In other words, Timothy, do not be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder. And we're going to save that for next time. Lord willing. Let's stand and pray. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. Do you have any remaining questions or comments? Please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.